Our sermon today is taken from Acts 1, 12 to 26. Here's the word of God. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowl gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken out from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrections. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thus says the Lord. Hello, welcome on this Lord's Day. Before we begin our sermon, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to preach your word. Lord, we ask that you would bless it to our hearts, and we ask, Lord, that you would be present among us. Thank you, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're studying the book of Acts today, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1. Now, last week in verses 4 and 5, we saw that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples uh, in Jerusalem and asked them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, as sinners, it's very difficult for us sometimes uh, because we're impatient to wait for anything right? Much less a promise from God. Because we all have certain expectations about our own happiness and well-being as believers. And as we'll see, the disciples faced a similar challenge because they too were very impatient because of their expectations about the kingdom of God and their position in that kingdom. And so when Jesus instructed them to wait for the promise of the Spirit, they immediately made a connection between the promise of the Spirit and the kingdom of God and their very own personal restoration as God's people. Now, just what exactly was the connection that they made and what did they understand about the promise of the Holy Spirit? Well, 
Quite often in the Bible, you'll find that the promise of the Holy Spirit is almost always connected with the coming of God's kingdom and the restoration of Israel as a nation. For example, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, speaking of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God says, For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Here you have salvation being accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice that in verse 20 of the same chapter, it also makes reference to the kingdom of God. Listen to what it says. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you a renowned and praised people among all the peoples of the earth. I will restore your fortunes. See, that's kingdom language. And again, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, with reference to the kingdom, God tells his people that in the kingdom, they shall eat plenty and be satisfied and praise his name. They will never again be put to shame and they will know that he is present among them in their midst. And then in the very next verse, verse 28, with reference to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God says that he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So you can clearly see that the promise of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God are usually linked together in the Old Testament. And so the disciples knew when, that when God poured out his spirit upon people in human history, then the kingdom would come and God's people would be restored and reign with him in victory. And this explanation for us, this explains why the disciples asked Jesus if he was about to restore the kingdom of God to Israel in verse 6 of chapter 1. You see, when Jesus told them that they would soon be baptized with the Holy Spirit, they just assumed that the kingdom of God would come. It would be ushered in, as well as ethnic, ethnic Israel be restored. And so their eager expectation that they had about their very own enjoyment and personal happenings in the kingdom of God was shattered when Jesus said to them not to be concerned when and where God's kingdom would be established, but instead to be faithful to the task that he had set before them of taking the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And honestly, I think that very same message is also true for us today as well, as many of us struggle with uncertainty and loss in the midst of this COVID epidemic. This life in this pandemic has also temporarily shattered some of our hopes, and expectations as well. Because sometimes it's very hard for us as believers to remain faithful to God without falling into despair when things get hard in life. And so our passage today shows us at least three things that we can learn from the response of the apostles, three ways that we can be faithful to God in times of uncertainty. First, the apostles were obedient and prayerful. Second, they understood the word of God. And third, they submitted to God's will. But first, they were obedient and prayerful. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. Now, why were they gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem in the first place? Well, as we already have stated, 
Jesus told them to stay there and to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, even though that sounds kind of simple to us, it was not really an easy thing to do in those days because Jerusalem was a place that happened to be a place where people were persecuted, Christians in general at that time. And so it actually took a certain amount of courage for the disciples to go back there and to potentially expose themselves to the wrath of the Pharisees and other religious authorities as well. In fact, it would have been much easier for them to just stay put and lay low somewhere in the countryside, perhaps, and even keep safe and out of sight from all the trouble. Or they could have invented or come up with many more excuses about how to pass the time as they waited for Jesus. You might remember that Jesus had already told them to go into the world and to share the gospel. And so they could have said, you know, we don't know about Jesus. He's taking so long. Uh, we don't know how long he's going to be gone. So you know what? Why don't we just go out and share the gospel with people? We're bored anyway, and we need something to do. You see how easy it would have been for the disciples to subtly disobey a command from Jesus, to take two very different commands from Jesus and kind of set them in contrast with one another. Well, you know, he told us to wait, right? But he also told us to share the gospel, right? And that's a good thing to do, right? Uh, so let's just do that while we're waiting. But you see, uh, you know, that's the wrong thing to do. The disciples are not being obedient, especially uh, uh, if they're disobeying Jesus' command. Now, unfortunately, many of us do the same thing today, right? We're struggling financially. We might say, you know, uh, we know the Bible commands us to tithe, but you know what? In ministry, my whole life is a tithe, right? So it's okay for us to skip paying tithes for this month, right? But you see, the responsibility to obey one commandment of God doesn't lessen our responsibility to disobey the others, right? We should do both. As ministers, we should both labor faithfully for the, king, for the church and the kingdom, but also pay our tithes as well. Or maybe you're not in ministry today and you're not a person who sets God's commands in contrast to one another, but instead you sometimes elevate God's commands, one command above another, as if one commandment was more important than all the rest, right? You say, uh, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. I regularly read my Bible and pray. I obey God as much as I can. But this one commandment against dating non-believers is hard for me. I just don't understand why it's so bad. I'm lonely, and I know God's word says that I shouldn't marry an unbeliever, but maybe this commandment is just not as important to me as all the rest. Besides, maybe he or she will become a Christian while we're dating, and then it'll be okay, right? And so you use your obedience in certain commandments to justify disobeying the others. You see, perhaps now we can get a better appreciation for the courage and patience that it took for the disciples to obey Jesus and to wait for his promise when they clearly could have done it otherwise. And so the disciples were clearly obedient to Jesus. But you want to know something else? The disciples were also prayerful. They were also prayerful. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoted themselves to prayer, 
together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So while they were waiting uh, for God's promise in the upper room, what exactly were they doing and who was there with them? Well, this passage tells us that it was 11 out of the 12 disciples, minus Judas, of course, as well as certain women, which included Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his biological brothers. And while we can only speculate who some of these other women were, I think there's something very important that we can learn about Jesus' biological mother, Mary. First of all, notice that contrary to the teaching of other religions, um, Mary is not the object of worship, not by the disciples, nor by anybody else who was present at the time. You see, Mary needs a savior just like every other Christian, which means that she herself had to place personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, notice also that Mary is not the one being prayed to in this sacred gathering of believers. No, she's not only not being prayed to, but instead she's listed here with everyone else and said to be praying to God for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so all of these people together devoted themselves along with Mary and obediently waited for God's promise. And although we are not told specifically what exactly it was that they prayed for, I think it's safe to assume that they were most likely praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised them. Now, you might be wondering, why are they praying for something that Jesus had already promised them, right? He promised to give it to them. You see, because if Jesus promised it to them, doesn't that mean it's going to happen anyway, whether they pray or not? I mean, if God already knows everything, then surely he doesn't need our prayers, right? Well, I would argue that this question actually needs to be turned upside down. Because I think the more difficult question is that if God is not sovereign, why should we pray at all? You see, if God is not sovereign, then there's absolutely no need for us to pray as Christians because we're praying to a God who can do nothing to change our circumstances. So why even bother in the first place? But I don't think we really believe that as Christians, do we? Because over and over again, the Bible reminds us that prayer is not inconsistent with the promises of God, nor is it inconsistent with his sovereignty. In fact, God often works through the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes in the Bible. And we can see that in the Lord's Prayer, for example, because there, think about it, Jesus tells us to pray for God's kingdom, right? Pray that the kingdom would come and for his will to be done even though all of us know that it's absolutely certain that God's kingdom will one day be established on earth forever, regardless of whether we pray for it or not. And so Jesus knows this, but yet and still, he commands us to pray anyway. Why? Because he knows that God uses means to accomplish his will, which includes the prayers and actions of his people. You know, John Calvin once said that, Prayer is not a sign of doubting, but rather a witness to our certain hope and confidence. Since we ask of the Lord the things that he knows he has already promised us. Isn't that an extraordinary statement on prayer? You see, he's saying that when we come together to pray, we're not confessing our doubt, 
But on the contrary, we're confessing our faith because we're asking God for the very things that he's already promised us. And our passage today says that God promised to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And so they commanded, they were commanded to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit came. And that's exactly what they did. They waited for the promise and prayed for it as well. And so we can learn from the apostles that in order to remain faithful to God in times of uncertainty, we must be obedient and prayerful. And that brings us to our second point, which is in order to be faithful to God in times of uncertainty, we must also understand the word of God. We must know what the Bible says as believers. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said to them, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those, a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So not only were the apostles obedient and prayerful, but they also spent time in God's word as well, because obviously they understood it, especially Peter. Notice how he interprets the Bible in verse 16, how even though he knew that the Psalms were written by King David, yet he still describes David as merely being an instrument through which the Holy Spirit spoke his word and recorded scripture in the Bible. Because he says in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. So unlike people in our culture, our modern culture here, Peter has a very high view of the Bible. He believes that it's the word of God and that every word in it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. The next time someone questions you about why you believe the Bible. But let's just take some time to think about the impact of Judas's betrayal and death upon the disciples, how it personally affected them. Because it must have been very difficult for them to understand how one of their own could be guilty of such a, such a terrible and despicable crime against the Lord Jesus, especially without them being aware of who that person was for a very long period of time. In fact, they probably even wondered why God allowed them personally to experience such a horrible betrayal by someone who they considered to be a friend. I mean, think of it. If they were not so rooted and grounded in scripture, they most likely would have stumbled in their faith. And we see this kind of thing happen all the time in the world today, where someone goes through a terrible divorce and loses their job or someone they love. And they respond by blaming God and questioning him as to why he would allow this to happen. And eventually they wind up losing all hope and end up leaving the church. But you see, Peter and the apostles found help with life's difficult questions by turning to God's word. They turned to God's word for answers as opposed to leaning on their own understanding when things got hard. And so in verse 16, Peter acknowledges that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The word had here refers to divine necessity. In other words, God's eternal purpose concerning Judas's betrayal of Christ had to be accomplished. It was necessary. 
God is sovereign, even over evil, and yet he is still not responsible for sin. Judas himself was fully responsible for everything that he did, even though all of his actions necessarily fulfill the prophecy of David that was written about him thousands of years before he was born. Now that's extraordinary. It's beyond comprehension for us how something like that could happen. But God knows everything about the future with absolute certainty. The Bible is very clear about that. You know, ironically, there are certain countries today where fortune-telling is a billion-dollar business. Why? Because people want to know the future, right? They want to know what the future holds for them, specifically, as a person. And so you see, when people, they go to many extremes to find out something about their future happiness, to make their life easier, many extremes. But unfortunately, the one thing that they will not do, the one thing that they refuse to do, is to turn to the God who holds their very future in the palm of his hands. The God who both promises and delivers an extremely bright future for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, instead of questioning God when things got hard, Peter and the apostles found comfort in God's sovereignty and turned to his word for understanding. And I think this is a legitimate question for all of us today as Christians who may be experiencing certain hardships during this COVID epidemic here in Indonesia right now. Whether we've lost a job or a loved one or struggling with our, with our businesses or just dealing with the loneliness and the despair that comes with being uh, isolated because of quarantine. Where or whom do we turn to when things get hard? Do we turn to the word of God in prayer or do we lean on our own understanding to navigate through life's problems? Brothers and sisters, God knows that life is hard. He knows it, but he really does bring good, out of evil, and he works all things according to the good of those who love him, including this very pandemic that we are experiencing now. And this truth was the hope and comfort for the disciples as they dealt with the betrayal of Jesus by one of their own apostles, one of their own fellow apostles. And notice, in verse 20, how Peter quotes from two different psalms in order to explain the departure of Judas and why his position as an apostle had to be filled by someone else. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now notice that in the first half, uh, the first half of verse 20 is taken from Psalm 69. And the second half is taken from Psalm 109. One describes the desolation of Judas's household or habitation, and the other describes how he should be replaced as an apostle. Now, verses 17 through 19 describes for us how the first quote has already been fulfilled in how Judas died and how his blood money was used to buy a desolate place that no one dared to live in. But notice also how the fulfillment of the second half of verse 20 
is taking place at the very same moment that Peter is speaking to the Christians who are with him. And it describes exactly how Judas's office was to be filled by another follower of Christ, because it says that another person should assume his position. You see, what God wants us to see by this is that his sovereign purposes that are recorded in the Bible will always come to pass. That whatever he has spoken by the Holy Spirit will ultimately be fulfilled in not only in this life, but also in the next, even if it takes thousands of years to be accomplished. And this should be a, also be a source of hope and comfort and security for us as Christians, because let's be honest, I think all of us can here, there are times when we all, as Christians, doubt the word of God. We all do it. We doubt his promises to us, especially when we suffer for the faith or when we're treated like outcasts in the world for our beliefs in the Bible. When we feel like our values, the values and ethics that we embrace in the Bible as believers are among the minority of people in the world. and People are mocking us for our faith. You see, that's when we, we doubt the most, right? And so knowing that all of God's promises about heaven, about life and his presence in the world to come, knowing that they're written in the Bible, and knowing that they will all ultimately be fulfilled should be a tremendous source of joy, comfort, and motivation for us as we navigate life through a fallen world as believers. The point is that the apostles were men who understood God's word, men who turned to his word, in order to explain the difficulties of experiencing the death and betrayal of Judas, as well as their need to replace him with another disciple of Christ. And so from their actions, we can definitely learn that we should also turn to God's word when we encounter difficulties in life as believers. So in order to be faithful to God in times of uncertainty, we must first be obedient and prayerful. Second, we must understand God's word. And then our third and final point is, that in order to be faithful to, to God in times of uncertainty, we must also submit to his will. Look at verses 23 through 26 with me. And they put forth two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So we see here that the apostles are faced with the critical task of finding a replacement for Judas. And the question is, how would they go about choosing a particular candidate? And there are at least three things that are fascinating about the method that they use to do so. First, there's a nomination process. Second, there is inter intercession made for the particular nominee. And then last of all, there is election. Now notice that when it came to replacing Judas in the process of nominating a candidate, the apostles submit to God's will. You see, they could have chosen whomever they wanted. They could have even uh, maneuvered behind the scenes in order to get the job for their friend or their favorite person, someone they liked, right? Someone they knew, but they didn't. No, you see, even though there was a vacant spot that needed to be filled, the apostles were well aware that it could not be filled just uh, by anybody because that was not their decision to make. 
that decision belonged to God. Because there were certain qualifications that had to be met by the person who God himself had chosen. And so verse 21 tells us that the person had to be someone who followed Jesus from the beginning, as well as was an eyewitness of his resurrection. So whoever it was, he had to have been an eyewitness of the risen Savior. And according to our text, there were only two men who qualified. One of these men was named Justice and the other Matthias. And so the nomination process yielded two candidates. But notice that after they were nominated, the apostles also made intercession for these two men as well. They prayed for them. In other words, after finding men that met the spiritual qualifications to be an apostle, now they turned to God in prayer to find out just whom he had chosen. And so they prayed to God saying, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these men you have chosen. And so again, the apostles submit to the will of God by praying to him and making intercession for their candidates. And only then did they begin the election process. And notice that at that particular time, the election process was accomplished by casting lots. You see, uh, verse 26 tells us that they cast lots for them and it fell to Matthias. So deciding by lots in those times was a common thing that they did in the Old Testament. It involved putting each man's name in a pot and then shaking the pot. And who, whose ever name fell out of the pot, that is the person who was said to be God's choice. And this is the last time that we see this kind of method being used in the Bible. And so it's most likely not meant to be a method that's repeated for us today. The point is not so much in the method that's being used, but in the submission of the apostles to the one, to God, the one who is actually deciding who is going to be chosen. And that was most certainly God. And so we can see that the apostles submitted to God's will in the election process as well. Now, why is this important for us? Well, what I want us to notice about the disciples is that there is a change that took place in their hearts, an extraordinary change. They changed from who they were uh, in the past to what they were now. I mean, think about it. James once asked Jesus if he could sit next to him, James and John, if he could sit next to him in glory. Peter once boasted that he had more courage than all the other disciples and that he would never deny Jesus, right? And they all at one time desired to be great in the kingdom. You see, once they were arrogant and completely self-centered, but now they appear to be humble and submissive. They submit to God's will to wait. They submitted to God's word. and They submitted to his will for a candidate as an apostle. Now, the question for you and me today is what about us, brothers and sisters? Are we submitting our lives to God? Are we submitting our hearts, our thoughts, and our actions to him? on a daily basis? Or in pride, are we leaning on our own understanding and living for our own glory and honor in the world? You know, Corey Ten Boom uh, was a Christian who became very famous in life. She had a worldwide ministry that spanned over 60 countries. 
In her lifetime, she also received tributes, including being knighted by the Queen of the Netherlands. She also wrote a best-selling book that was turned into a movie. Well, once she was asked if it was hard for her to stay humble on account of all of her fame, listen to how she responded. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of this was for him? And then she said this, if I could only be that donkey which Christ rides into his glory, I would give him all the praise and all the honor and glory. You see, all that mattered to her was the glory and honor of God. And my prayer, brothers and sisters, for us today is that that is all that really matters to us as well. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this passage, Lord. I pray that you would bless us, Lord, during this pandemic. It is hard, Lord. Many of us have doubts. Many of us, Lord, are facing times of uncertainty about the future. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn to your word in prayer and to submit to your will where you have placed us. Father, be with us in a special way. We thank you for our redemption in Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.